0: Amen. Well, if you have to leave here with a theme today, I hope it is, we sing hallelujah because the Lamb is overcome. I thought that was amazing. If you are here with us last week, then you know that this is actually the second of three weeks that we are spending in just the first six chapters of the book of Joshua. And we're doing it really for two reasons, the first of which is it's kind of a nice way to conclude the study of the book of Exodus that we just finished, that story, that study of the book of Exodus in which God… This really amazing leader, this incredibly gifted man named Moses, did what? Well, he led his people, the Israelites, out of 430 years of slavery and oppression to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, one of the most powerful men in the world. So that's kind of a big deal, and He did it by doing undeniably miraculous thing after miraculous thing after miraculous thing after miraculous thing. Moses led them out of Egypt. Moses led them across the wilderness. Moses led them up to the Red Sea just where God led them, actually, and pinned them up against it with Pharaoh's army coming out to seek vengeance if He were with us. And what does God do? How does He deliver them? Well, He delivers them miraculously through Moses as Moses raises his staff and parts the waters. That's kind of cool. They walk through the waters. They're rescued from Pharaoh's armies who are wiped out as the waters collapse upon them after having followed them into them. They go out into the desert again, and and now they're thirsty, and God through Moses brings forth water from a rock, and then they're hungry, and God through Moses brings forth this stuff called manna, this, this bread from heaven. God gives them the law from Moses, if you will, from the mountain of God. Moses meets with God face to face again and again and again and again. Moses leads these people for over 40 years, and he takes them all the way to the border of the Promised Land. And all this while, God is promising them this land, which they come up into in the book of Joshua. So, that's why it's kind of a nice way to conclude it because you see how God who has promised them this land all along and sustained them and led them through Moses all along actually follows through on the promise and gives them the land. But we're talking about this as well because it gives us a great excuse, frankly, to talk about a huge topic in our society and not just out there but in here. And that is the topic of fear and panic and anxiety. And I understand that all three of those have different definitions. I totally get that, but I also know by experience that they show up a lot together. And they have shown up in my life as I shared last week. Uh, And then after sharing last week, I discovered they've shown up in a lot of your life. So, very relevant topic because there's no question but that they showed up in Joshua's life. Good grief. Joshua takes over for Moses. And he takes over for him on the border of the promised land, which represents the single greatest challenge that this generation of Israelites is going to face. Why? Because this generation of Israelites, this nation of former slaves, these are not a warlike people, are now going to take up arms, and they're going to head up into the promised land, where by the power of God, okay, but nevertheless, militarily, they are going to have to drive out all of the peoples of the land, by the way, who are warlike people, fortress cities. They know how to fight, scary. And so, as we saw last week, God who is sensitive to our needs and to where we're at spiritually, physically, and emotionally came to Joshua and He said, hey, buddy, here's the deal. I know that you are freaking out. I totally get where you're at. So, I'm going to fix this for you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a series of really amazing, incredible promises that you can cling to as you step out and literally, in your case, Joshua, put your life at risk, the lives of your family at risk, the lives of these two to three million people that you're now leading, at risk. I'm going to give you promises that you can live by, that you can trust in, and that should take your angst and bring it down a few notches. And, you know, I mean, if you missed last week, then what you kind of want to say is, well, you know, good for Joshua. I mean, God made him promises. You know, what has he said to me? And I'm going to say what I said last week nicely, okay? Why don't you know the answer to that question? Now, if you weren't raised in church and you're not one of these people who has a Bible in their car and on their phone and in their desk at work and 14 at home, I mean, I know I'm weird, but I think we have at least 14 at home, okay? I get that. Like, you don't know the answer to that, and that's, that's understandable. But if you have a Bible on your phone and in your desk and in your car and, I don't know, two at the house, I mean, God is saying to you, listen, I, I, you want to know what I've promised you? I've made you hundreds of promises. Here they are. Take it up and read. Because therein you will find food for your soul. Therein you will come to hear the voice of the Savior. Therein you will find comfort and strength and the ability to face your fears. God also came to Joshua and said, okay, so second thing I want you to do is I want you to be obedient to me. Like, I want you to follow my word and be obedient to my law and to my commandments. And why does He do that? He does that for us too, incidentally, because that's the place of safety. One of the ways that God protects us from so many of the anxiety-producing circumstances of life is by calling us to obey the wisdom from another world, but that comes from the author of this world. Who knows better than anyone else how this world works? God comes to us and says, Listen, do you want to be safe? Obey. Even if, in Joshua's case, that means putting your life at risk. Doesn't feel very safe, does it? And certainly, apart from the promises, it wouldn't be. But then, lastly, God came to Joshua and he said, Okay, so here's my biggest promise to you, Joshua. I'm going to assure you of my presence with you. And that is the same assurance that we receive through faith in Jesus, guys that's what we get through the gospel. Through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are assured that everything between us and God is nothing but good, and not because we're nothing but good. That's why we worry about this relationship, if we're honest. We're assured that it's nothing but good because Jesus is nothing but good, and He has taken His nothing but good life, and in love for me and for you, to rescue us from all the bad in ours, He has laid it down as a sacrifice. So that all the barriers between us and our Creator are removed and we can have an authentic love relationship with Him. It's a beautiful thing. And by the power of His Spirit, He lives in us. That's presence. That's amazing. So as we continue the story today in the book of Joshua, God comes to Joshua and He says, okay, so here's the next move, guys. Joshua, I want you to take all the people of Israel and I want you to you know, pull up all your tent pegs and I want you to move your camp and I want you to go to the eastern shoreline of the River Jordan, which at this point in the story is the only thing, the only physical barrier now between them and the land that God has promised to them. And he takes them, God does, to the River Jordan when it's at flood stage. In other words, when it's at its broadest, deepest, and therefore most intimidating point if what you have to do is get 2 to 3 million people, young and old, firm and infirm, sick and healthy, together with all of their animals and all of their possessions across the river. That is an impossible task. How are you going to do that? They don't have bridge builders back then. They don't have like you know the way to do this kind of thing they wouldn't have the materials to do this kind of, and even if they did all the peoples of this land that they're going into know they're coming they just stand on the other side of the bridge and say yeah send them over 10 at a time wiping them out are they going to raft is that going to work we're going to create a bunch of rafts we're going to create enough rafts for 2 to 3 million people and animals and is that going to work I mean, these guys would just stand on the shoreline going, yeah, send us another raft. We'll kill these guys, and then we'll just kill you one raft load at a time. That sounds good. That works for us. It's not going to work. They have reached an impassable barrier is the idea. So, left to themselves, they are done. But the deal is they're not left to themselves, and the point is neither are we. And I want you to work that through for a second. I mean, either we live in a world that was supernaturally created and is supernaturally sustained, in which Almighty God is living and active and present, or we don't. Either we ourselves, through faith in Jesus, are possessed of the Spirit of the living God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything we can ask or imagine, or we're not so here's the deal. If we are living in that world, and if we are possessed of that spirit, then when we come up against impassable barriers, there's still hope. Why? Because there is a God for whom things are not impassable. I'm out of resources, Lord, like, I, I, you know, I got nothing here, so He has something. But if we don't live in that world and we're on our own, then we have every reason to be fearful and anxious and panic-stricken because impassable barriers exist i think sometimes to expose our weaknesses to us and cause us to go good grief maybe is there a god out there because i can't deal with this and god here in this story is with joshua and the israelites and so here's what happens we read in joshua 3 beginning in verse two, that at the end of three days, hang on to that, that's actually significant. What happened? The officers of Israel went throughout the camp of Israel and they commanded the people of Israel, and here's the command. They said, as soon as you see the what? The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, being carried by the Levitical priests, then you guys, and get ready now, okay, so that you can do this, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. And the question is, where? Where? I mean, are they going to follow it back out into the wilderness that they just came from? I mean, where are they going to go with this thing? Because you know the Jordan. I mean, it's it's at flood stage. It's it's two to three million people, and the answer is they're going to follow it literally into and then through the Jordan River. If you don't know the story, what happens is God parts the waters of the Jordan River, and then everybody just walks through. It's remarkable. And the way that He does it is significant, not just to them, but to us. And I say that, first of all, because the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is a beautiful picture of Jesus. I mean, if you think about it, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was the emblem of God's presence on earth with His people. It was the throne of God. It's remarkable. And what did it contain? It contained the Word of God. Now, wait a minute, who's Jesus? He's God-made man, is He not? How does John refer to Jesus in the New Testament? He refers to Him as the living Word. The Ark of the Covenant contained a bowl, a golden bowl of manna, this bread-like substance that appeared every day to sustain the Israelites. But what were they told? They're told, listen, you can only gather enough for one day because, I mean, if you try to keep it overnight, it gets rotten. It doesn't last. And yet in the Ark of the Covenant it was preserved, it was everlasting. What does Jesus do? And what does He offer? The self-proclaimed bread of life comes to me and comes to you, and He offers us everlasting life. It contained as well the staff of Aaron, the first high priest of Israel, is dead stick. That's all it is. But then in a previous story, God made to come to life, life out of death. It blossomed. It produced fruit. What is it telling us? It's telling us that God is a God who brings life out of dead things just as He takes Jesus. God made man the bread of life, the one who lays down his life, and on the third day brings him to life again. So, what do you have in this story so far? Well, we've got the Ark of the Covenant, which is a beautiful picture of Jesus, and now it's going to pass through the waters of the Jordan River, which incidentally, biblically speaking, is an emblem or an image of chaos and judgment and death. Why do I say that? Page one of the Bible the earth is formless. It's void. It's dark. It's dead. It's covered in water. Chapter 7 of the Bible, the flood of Noah, the earth is covered in water. Move up to Exodus 14, that scene at the Red Sea. It's certain death for the Israelites until God parts the waters, and then they get through, and then God brings destruction upon the Egyptians by collapsing the waters upon them. You get the idea. So now we've got the Ark of the Covenant, this beautiful picture of Jesus, and it's going to pass through waters that represent judgment and chaos and death in order to accomplish what for the people of God? In order to gain for them the promised land. That's the gospel. God Himself comes to us in a physical form that we understand He comes as a human God-made man, and He passes through judgment and chaos and death in our place on the cross that through faith in Him we might be forgiven, restored to a right relationship with God, and we might gain at His expense. He's gained this for us and gives it as a gift, what? New heavens, new earth. That's the idea. But what I really want you to focus on is how He does it, because I think it's the key to the whole story. If you did your personal worship, you know that as soon as the soles of the shoes on the feet of the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant touch the waters of the Jordan, okay, the waters of the Jordan part, and they don't leave behind a muddy mess for all these guys to tramp through, you know, and pick up the kids, and don't let the dog get dirty, and all their, you know, wagon wheels get stuck in the mud. It, it, no, it parts, and it leaves behind perfectly dry ground, which together with everything else I've said thus far, if there is no God, is absolutely crazy, isn't it? But if there is a God, and if He is the God of the Bible, then dry ground in this moment in particular makes absolutely perfect sense. And the reason for that is because as you read through the Bible, and these people knew this, dry ground that comes out of water is one of the signature moves of God. In fact, in the creation story on the first page of the Bible, God brings forth dry ground from the water. Guess on which day? On the third day. And so now we're on the third day of their story, and He brings forth dry ground from the water. It's amazing, and He does that so that these people who are coming up to do the most fearful thing that they will ever have to do will be reminded of that previous story because in that previous story, what they remember is that their God who is going with them, He's going before them, He's parting the waters with them their God is a God who not only can bring light out of darkness, but does. Who not only can order that which is crazed and chaotic and out of control, but does. Who not only can take things that are utterly and completely void and empty and fill them authentically with good things, but does. And who on that story, in the creation story, on the third day after bringing forth dry ground, He brought forth organic life from the dry ground, meaning grass and trees and flowers and plants. He brings forth living things from that which has died. That is their God, but He's not just their God. That's the payoff for us. And what those realizations did for them and ought to do for us, as we're reminded, my goodness, that's my God, is it ought to take like a big fat bucket of water, you know, and dump it. On the fire of our fear and anxiety and panic. And just so they and we didn't forget, we read in Joshua 4, beginning in verse 1, that when all the nation of Israel had finished passing over the Jordan River, the Lord said to Joshua, Take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, so all of Israel is represented, and command them, saying, Take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan from the very place where the priests stood firmly and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. What is he saying? He's saying, Joshua, I want to create a monument to this. I want there to be a memorial built for this particular instance that you guys just experienced. And the purpose of this memorial is not just for you and your generation, it's for all generations, It's so that every time you guys as a people freak out or grow anxious or begin to doubt or forget what I'm like or who I am or what I can do or whether I'm actually with you, you can come back to this pile of stones. And there you can be reminded of who I am and what I'm like and of what I have the ability to do and of the fact that I have not abandoned you. I have not forsaken you. I am with you. So with courage, you can move forward. And one of the things that I think is helpful is for us to realize that those piles of rock all over the Bible, like this one, don't just belong to them or even to the generations of their kids that we read about in this story, but they belong to us, too. Listen, by faith, those are our people. The biblical people are not ethnically defined. They are defined by faith in the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus. And so then, their history is our history. Their pile of rocks is our pile of rocks, and so is every other monument that you find in the Bible. But I find that it's helpful, frankly, to have some piles of rocks in your life. It's a good thing. It really is. One of the places that we go every time we go to Israel on a tour is to the Valley of Elah. And uh, I don't know how many of you have been there, but uh, it's an amazing place. It's one of my favorite sites on the tour. I'm just going to be honest. That's why we go there. Okay. Because I want to share it with everybody. Like I want you to come back going, man, the Elah Valley, that was amazing because it's amazing to me. It's the place where David fights Goliath. Do you know that story? David is just a shepherd boy at this point in his life. He shows up at the battlefront, and the Israelites are on one side of the valley, and the Philistines are on the other side of the valley, and the great giant Goliath comes out to defy God and all the armies of God and to challenge Israel to send out one guy to just face him in battle on behalf of each respective nation. And nobody's taken that deal. Like you know, David shows up to deliver, I don't know, wine and cheese or something. And, you know, he's like, and he hears this and he thinks, well, you know, I got some time, so I'll do it, You know, which is ridiculous, crazy. But he's the only one willing. He's the only one who believes that God will defeat this man. And so eventually they say, well, all right, bud, have at it. And what happens? He walks down the hill. He walks through the little brook. He stops and he gathers his five smooth stones. He walks up into the valley and he takes down the giant, a shepherd boy with a sling and a rock, a stone. Okay. So every time we go there, I get stones. It's not illegal. Just know that. Okay. (laughs) But you see the whole thing. I mean, the valley is broad and flat. There are kind of mountain-type hills on one side where the Philistines were, and there are mountain-type hills on the other side where the Israelites were. And you know where the Israelites were because you have to actually walk through the brook from the mountains to get up onto the little valley plain. And there are trillions of rocks there still, even though I take about five or ten every time I go. (laughs) Why do I take these things? I give these to people sometimes. People who are really going through it, man. I take them because David's God is my God. The God who lived in David and worked through him lives and works through me. I pull it out of my deck, keep it in like a little felt bag at my desk. You know, I've, I actually have five. I'm down to four as of this morning now. But, but really, about to be down to three. But But I keep them there, and every once in a while I'll just pull one out, (laughs) set it on my desk. People probably wonder, what's with the rock? That's kind of weird, because it looks pretty normal, doesn't it? Just ordinary, just like me. God uses ordinary people, ordinary objects, to do extraordinary things. People surrendered to Him. People who believe and trust in His promises, who sense and feel His presence. And it's helpful for me to have a little pile of rocks in my desk because every once in a while it's good for me to pull those rocks out and be reminded of who He is. You're not in it alone. I think I have metaphorical rocks in my life too, monuments, if you will. I've got this whole series of events, for example, that led me to be where I'm at today. I remember just sort of analyzing that whole series of events almost 17, 18 years ago now. And, and it was a series of events that really led me to have this conversation with Beth. And we had been working it through together like this wasn't a new revelation to her. But really, we kind of both concluded that, okay, the question is not whether or not I should quit my job and whatever and, and come over here to be the pastor of this church. Uh, that's answered. The rocks are there like they're undeniable. The question is, okay, are we going to do this or not? Are we going to do this or not? And it is helpful on some of those head-scratching days where you think to yourself, and everybody has these, what in the world have I done, you know? What have I gotten into? And there's not a lot of those days, but they happen occasionally, to go back to that pile of rocks and go, yes, but Lord, this and this and this and this and get the idea? I mean, if I'm going to go do something else, I'm going to have to climb over this pile of rocks to get there. And I find that when I come to the pile of rocks, I... don't desire to do anything else. So, what is the bottom line from this story? I think the bottom line is that you have a God in Jesus, okay? The true ark of God who passed through the fiery waters, if you will, of judgment and death and so forth in love for you. And that He's a God who brings light out of darkness, order out of chaos, fullness out of emptiness. He fills, empties hearts and lives and He brings things to life that have died, that we've given up on, and He is absolutely and utterly and completely faithful to His people. And He's left behind for all of us a piles of rocks like lots of them in His Word, and we need to claim them as our own. And if we're honest and we look for it, we'll realize that He's left some pile of rocks in our lives, too my personality, I look forward, guys. I'm always going forward. I don't stop and celebrate the way I should. I'm always moving, moving. You know, that's part of my personality. It's a blessing and a curse. But every once in a while, a Jordan River comes along and stops me in my track, and then I get out a rock. And I look at the rocks in my life. And I would encourage you to do the same. They are God's gift to you. And they're there to tell you that you're not in this alone. And as a result, there's always hope. So, are you in God's word? And what are the piles of rocks that he's given to you? Because I think it would be a helpful exercise to go home and write it down. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to your people. God, that even when we are unfaithful, you remain faithful. It is your nature. It is your character. You are the God who has for us overcome all of our failures and given us what we do not deserve, but what Jesus has earned for us, which is everlasting life. Lord, let us know your love. Let us know your joy. Let us know your presence and the peace that is found within it. And let us experience these things, God, as we come to this table and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, this table in many ways is a monument. On the night that Jesus is betrayed, what does he do? He sets up a remembrance meal. It's like a pile of rocks, really. Guys, I'm about to go to the cross, and as a result of my going to the cross, my body broken, my blood poured out, you will be filled with my spirit and know everlasting life no matter how things go for you in this world, no matter how things end for you in this world, I have gained for you the true promised land, and it's all good. I will redeem all of your hardship and all of your suffering and all of your failures and all of your mistakes. I will bring good things out of them. Life will come out of that which you have killed and other things that have been killed for you. You'll see it. Rest. It's remarkable. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me, but as we'll read in just a second, Paul says it doesn't just look back, it looks forward. It looks forward to his return. It looks forward to the new heavens and new earth. It calls us to remember what he's done, remember his presence with us now and interact with him, but to remember that he will return again and all of his promises will be fulfilled. It's a remarkable thought. And so this is a table that is uniquely for people who have concluded that I have failed the Lord I have no remedy for my failure. Jesus is the only remedy for my failure. I claim him and his life and sufferings and death and burial and even resurrection from the dead, as crazy as it sounds, but it's not crazy if he's God. Death cannot hold the author of life. I claim that as the basis for my relationship with God. This table, if you can say that authentically, is for you. If you can't say that authentically, then please, we would love to talk to you after the service about that. See if we can answer some questions for you. I'm so thrilled that you are here to hear about Jesus. And we also have a program called Alpha that's coming up, where we just have a dinner and a meal. And we just talk about spiritual things. And, and, and mostly what we do is just listen to you. So we'd love for you to join us for that. And there's information at the information table if that might be something you're interested in. But otherwise, we want to take this moment. We want to talk to the Lord about whatever it is that he is maybe talking to you about. And then come forward to the table and meet with him here and receive these emblems in joy. So the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this table. We praise you for the one who has sacrificed all that we might enjoy it. And Lord, let us enjoy it. Let us enjoy it to your glory. Meet with us now, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.